Good afternoon. Thank you to the uh, coming today to the very first breakout session of the um, conference. Um, my name is April Christofferson and my friend Christine Rogers, um, who may or may not be married to the guy who put this conference on, uh, Will Rogers, back in the back. If you have any problems, Will's your guy. I'll give you his cell number later, okay? That way you can get directly a hold of him if you have a problem, right? Will, we talked about that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so Christine and I hail from the beautiful state of Colorado. Um, we live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and we are OTs, or occupational therapists. How many of you in here know what an OT is and what an OT does? Oh, my Woo! gosh, I'm so blessed. You know what we do. Okay, so what you're looking at right here are two very different generations of OT. I got my degree about 27 years ago. Um, they did have colleges back then, um, and I did go to a college. I did get a BA and a BS, uh, one in psychology and one in occupational therapy. Um, my friend Christine got hers from James Madison University, and uh, she got her master's degree. So, gosh, back then we didn't have master's degrees. I don't know, you know. So, um, Christine and I work uh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, for the Shandy Clinic, which is a pediatric clinic for uh, developmental disorders and behavioral disorders. Um, we actually have four clinics in the city. Um, right now we serve about 4,800 children a month. So 4,800 appointments between OT, PT, and speech pathology. So that's kind of a little bit of our background. Um, we're going to kind of tag team today so you'll get the best of both of us. Um, and Christine's going to go ahead and get started here. We're going to be talking today about trauma and um, how to approach it a little bit differently than hopefully you've done before. Okay. All right, so we are going to start off with an exercise. I want you guys to just kind of have fun with me for a moment. It's not typically how you would start a trauma training, but close your eyes, and I want you to think back to typically, what does the day after Christmas look like for me? Maybe you're surrounded by family, friends, eating leftovers, playing with new gadgets, baking cookies, hopefully warmth, fun feelings, fun memories. Okay, you can open your eyes. So, on December 26th in 2004, 11 years ago, while we were having those good emotions sitting on our couch, being surrounded by family, across the world, the deadliest tsunami hit the shores of Sri Lanka, India, and Thailand. It killed over 225,000 people and displaced more than 1.7 million people. So go back to those feelings of what you're experiencing on the day after Christmas, that feeling of warmth, that feeling of love, that feeling of joy. And I want you to imagine seeing the pictures on the screen that you see right now come up on your television screen when you open your computer to USA Today. You see images of maybe somebody holding on to a piece of wood as they float down what used to be a street and now is a rapid river. Maybe a woman who falls to her knees as she looks over the picture of her deceased husband. Maybe a child who just looks confused because we don't know where mom and dad is anymore. I use these graphic images because that's what compels our hearts in this room to when we see these images and we put ourselves in the place of where those people are, we're probably compelled to want to move. I'm speaking to a room of either medical missionaries or people who dream to be that someday. And 
we are designed to want to care for those who are in need. And it's a good thing. That's what Christ calls us to do. He calls us to reach out for those who are in need and to care for those who are hurting. And it's such a beautiful design that we get to come to those people in their place of need and to love them and build relationship. But we can also tell that there are times in the past where we haven't done this well. And we've actually brought more harm in some cases than good. And though sometimes it's an uncomfortable topic to talk about, I think it's one that we need to begin this conversation with. Because trauma is a very vulnerable group of people. And um, we need to be thoughtful in the way that we approach it. So we're going to begin by talking specifically about Sri Lanka and um, what a group of counselors that were eager and excited and saw there is opportunity for me to use my gifts, use my education to be able to help these people. But what happened as a result? So, um, so two weeks after the event, Shakar Saxena, who is the director of the Department of Mental Illness and Substance Abuse for the World Health Organization in Geneva, he arrives on the scene, and a reporter comes up to him and says, Wow, look around. There are so many counselors here, so many aid groups. What do you think? This is great. And he said, I see hundreds of counselors doing nothing or getting in the way. He said, I believe that if you send a counselor who doesn't know the local language or doesn't understand the local culture, it could be as detrimental as sending the wrong medicine. That seems like a pretty stark statement, maybe a bit extreme. Um, but to give you an idea of what the, what the culture looked like at that moment, we did. We had hundreds of eager counselors who ran over and unfortunately were so eager that rivalry broke out. So while people were experiencing treatment from one training group, they were being bribed to get treatment from the other training groups. Um, They were blocking unintentionally the uh, locals from being able to do the work themselves. And so locals, who may be a few and far between, had some training in psychology or counseling. Instead of being able to reach out to the people who were hurting themselves in their community, They were instead working off of a whiteboard trying furiously to orchestrate all of these incoming Westerners and plug them in with the right places to be plugged into. So one of them, whose name is Mahisin Ganesan, and I'm not kidding, (laughs) it's a fun one, Um, he, he eventually gave up on the whiteboard, but he had come across a bunch of aid groups, and he said, you know, there's one key difference I noticed between groups that bring medicine, food, resources, the material needs, and those that bring psychological help. The ones that bring material needs, either before they get here or when they arrive, they immediately ask, what do you need? But the psychological groups, that wasn't the case. They came with their manuals. They came with their treatment approaches. They came ready to serve. But they didn't ask the question, what do you need? Ganesan was asked later on, why why do you think that is? And he said, I think that people from the West think that there are similar responses to trauma no matter where you go and that there's a universal approach to fixing it. This is something that we need to hear and we need to respond to. Um, In Sri Lanka, they would respond to trauma much different than you would hear in our offices here in the United States. If you're used to working with individuals with trauma um, here in the States, you might be looking for 
oh, that's a symptom of dissociation. I can explain that. Those are nightmares. We, we would predict to see that in a category of PTSD. You might be looking for symptoms of fear or anxiety. But in an individual who's from Sri Lanka, they experience things on a very tangible basis. So whereas we think through a framework of psychological or the mind, they're more likely to think through, how does this affect my social context? I, I don't first go to, I'm grieving, I'm sad, I'm, my heart is hurting. I go to, I had a community once, and now that the physical location of that community is wiped away, those people will not be able to gather around me again, and thus my life has changed greatly. Or... Um, Literally, physical implications of this, these are the symptoms I feel physically. I don't say I feel sad, but I feel pain in my chest. I don't say I feel exhausted, but I say my, my muscles and my joints, they ache. And so um, asking, how do you experience hardship? How do you experience pain is absolutely essential before going over. But in addition, I think that um, in the West, we, we tend to have a few tools that we really rely on, and they, they work pretty well. So I'm going to use an analogy of butter, milk, and eggs and cooking here in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> so if you were to ask any good cook who's probably in this area, I would bet that no matter what they have on the menu for that week, they are probably getting at the grocery store butter, milk, and eggs every time they make a trip. So let's say Susie is who we're talking about here in this culture. She's, she's getting these buttermilk and eggs, and she's whipping up amazing meals. But April and I invite her. We want you to come back to our home. In fact, we've got some great friends. They've got an open guest bedroom in Boulder. They'd love to have you. And so she, wanting to show her kindness and desire to help out, whips up this amazing meal. And she's got all of her favorite ingredients including butter, milk, and eggs, the tried and true. And she sits down, she prepares this meal, she shows it to them, and after the meal she asks, so how did you like it? And they say, well, quite honestly, our stomachs are kind of hurting. She didn't take that time to ask them, are you vegan? Can you eat this meal? I think that a lot of times we do a similar thing in the United States. Maybe we have our tool bag of a couple of great practices that we use, and we can make some incredible recipes from that. We see healing come from those few tools, those few ingredients. But we get there so eager to show what we can do, what we can present, that we don't take the time to ask, are these the ingredients that you guys use? What ingredients do you use to create your meals or healing? And so that's where we want to begin today, is just the importance of needing to step into this culture wherever you're going, wherever you're experiencing trauma, whether in the United States or overseas, and seek to understand before being understood. We're going to carry into some principles at the end of this talk, um, but right now we're going to start with a few treatment approaches, and before that, leaping into how does trauma affect the brain. So there's a few areas that we have found in OT. It's super helpful to know, okay, this is what I can expect. An individual who has experienced trauma, so the sympathetic nervous system is running. That's the system in your brain, the nervous system throughout your body that says you need to be on fight or flight. 
So when I see a bear, I have adrenaline and cortisol coursing through my body so that I have the ability either to fight that bear or to run away way faster than when I'm just sitting on the couch watching TV. It's a good system. We thank the Lord for it. But if that system doesn't have time to turn off, if that adrenaline and cortisol doesn't have time to stop being released, there's detriment that we can see that is done to the brain. And there's five areas in particular that we can continually see in research they go back to. If an individual has been diagnosed with PTSD or experienced trauma, these are the areas that tend to be affected. So for the hippocampus, this is the area that controls memory, learning, and stress regulation. We're going to quickly go through these, and then we'll we'll come back to it. Prefrontal prefrontal cortex, um, this is the area that carries the higher-level decision-making. So decision-making, judgment, impulse control, attention. Um, This would be when... The the patients that we see on a daily basis, they have so much difficulty in school because my head is not thinking about what that teacher is talking about in the front of the classroom. My head is thinking about what I have to go home to. The amygdala, which is um, the center for emotions, emotional control, but especially when we've had long-term releases of the sympathetic nervous system, adrenaline, and cortisol, we are going to see fear and anxiety heightened. So, for example, if Susie is sitting in class and Jimmy drops the, the box of crayons next to her, immediately my response was fear and anxiety heightened because I hear a threat and I go right back to a response that was similar to what I had to provide when I was actually facing trauma or actual real danger. The corpus callosum, which is its primary role is integrating left brain and right brain. This is extremely important in just perception of your environment around you and understanding um, what your body is experiencing. We can get more into that later as we get into timing. And then the somatosensory cortex. This is the area that controls all of understanding what is happening in your environment and how do I categorize it. I hear the drop of crayons and I recognize it and then I go back to learning. Susie's not going back to learning. She's still on alert because I heard that that sudden movement, I heard that sudden noise, and I need to be on alert to respond to the next threat. Um, So we see this a lot with our kiddos that, that... any type of um, loud environment, any type of um, new smells or um, new tactile input is just very overwhelming for them. So this is kind of a quick synopsis of some of the things that we might see a child struggling with from the neurological basis. To a typical teacher or to a counselor going overseas, this might look like they're not paying attention to my course. Why are their behaviors looking like this? Are you serious? Was that a good move to make right now? But in reality, this is just the effects of what their brain has been through and and an actual healthy response to say, I'm not going to let that happen to me again. Um, At our our clinic, we use a study called the ACE study quite a bit. Um, It's a study that the CDC has been working on for many years. They're continuing to gather results from participants around the country because it's been so successful and really giving us some good clues. Um, But what this basically starts with is at the very base, they are specifically looking at children before the age of 18. If they have experienced adverse childhood experiences, then we see... Disrupted neurodevelopment, which is those areas of the brain that we just talked about and we will continue to talk about. 
But from that disrupted neurodevelopment, we see concerns with social, emotional, cognitive impairments. That's where we're used to working. That's where we're used to addressing and seeing the concerns and going right there. From that, we have adoption of health risk behaviors to either numb or to help heal the pain that we're experiencing. That develops into disease and disability, social problems, and thus resulting often in early death. Now, we're typically used to addressing these concerns at the purple level. But if we can move down to red and address the neurodevelopment of that individual or that child and the effects that it's had on the brain, then there could be some real success in our treatment that goes beyond what we're able to do when we just address purple. So, April, if you want to take it from there. Sure. Okay, so I'm going to play you a video of uh, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who actually was part of the ACEs study. It's just a one-minute clip, and then we're going to continue to talk about my favorite subject, neurodevelopment. How exposure to adversity affects the developing brains and bodies of children. And we understand better than we ever have before how exposure to early adversity affects the developing brains and bodies of children. It affects areas like the nucleus accumbens, the pleasure and reward center of the brain that is implicated in substance dependence. It inhibits the prefrontal cortex, which is necessary for impulse control and executive function, a critical area for learning. And on MRI scans, we see measurable differences in the amygdala, the brain's fear response center. So there are real neurologic reasons why folks exposed to high doses of adversity are more likely to engage in high-risk behavior and are especially sensitive to this repeated stress activation because their brains and bodies are just developing. High doses of adversity not only affect brain structure and function, they affect the developing immune system, developing hormonal systems, and even the way our DNA is read and transcribed. Okay, so some of you might be thinking, well, duh, yeah, if you have a lot of adverse childhood experiences, trauma, you are going to have some physical issues later on but not to the extent that the ACEs study has discovered. We're talking heart disease at age 40 from a pre-trauma experience at age 2. Okay? At our clinics in Colorado Springs, we often will see drug-affected babies from in utero who 15, 20 years later are developing high blood pressure, are developing schizophrenia. Okay? From an adverse childhood experience pre-birth, or before the age of two. Do you know that most of our um, sociopaths, our psychopathic killers, our serial killers in the United States have had an adverse childhood experience before the age of five? Every single one of them. Okay. Wow. Now that you're all scared and you know that your neighbor down the street had an adverse childhood experience at the age of five, you're like, I've got to change my locks on my door. What am I going to do? Well, what, what we are going to do right now is we're going to talk a little bit about the brain. So, over the course of my life and the experiences that I've been able to have, um, I've been able to talk and do some research on the brain myself. And some of this is really fascinating to me. Just hang with me. I'll get back to the fun part here in just a bit. Hopefully, this will be fascinating for you, too. So, did you know that humans have 12 levels of timing and processing in the brain? That's how God created us. We don't just have one clock. 
that tick-tocks every second. Our clock in our brain goes from days, 24-hour clock, to microsecond clock. So let's talk about the day clock. Someone who maybe has had an adverse childhood experience or a trauma, one of the first things that we ask is, how's your sleeping patterns? Are you eating? Okay, someone who's had a stroke, let's put this in terms that maybe we can all relate to, someone who had a car accident, typically your circadian rhythms are off. Okay, circadian rhythms would be your sleep-wake cycles and your appetite cycles. Some of us, when we're frustrated or upset, we eat a lot. And some of us don't eat at all. Miss Christine. Um, (laughs) So um, we have to learn to overcome that cognitively, but some people do not have the cognitive experience to be able to overcome that. Okay, so we're talking circadian rhythms. Let's go to the opposite end of that. That would be our microsecond processing. That is when you are in the forest in Colorado and you hear that twig snap and you forgot your gun and you turn around and there's a bear. Yes, we carry in Colorado. We do. And I'm pretty sure most of you carry here. They haven't taken away that right. So, um, yeah, I carry. Um, So I turn around and I'm like, oh, I didn't get my gun, my adrenaline is going, right? Like, I'm thinking, stop, drop, and roll. No, that's if there's a fire. Climb a tree. Wait, the bear can climb a tree. What do I do? Throw the dog at the bear and run. That's what you do, okay? Because, you know, what are you going to do? So that is microsecond processing. The hairs on the back of your neck stand up. That is your fight or flight system. Christine touched on that just a little bit. Then in the middle, microsecond processing and second processing. Conscious time estimation. When I'm walking and there's a million cords on the floor and I'm wearing three-inch heels, I have to know when to shift my weight and step or you guys get to laugh at me because I'm laying on the floor, right? That is conscious time estimation. It's also the difference between men's and women's brains. Honey, dinner's ready in five. Oh, I'll be there in five, and 15 minutes later, dinner's cold. But I, you know, we have a difference in conscious time estimation. Did you know that families who have one child with ADHD, that it's a genetic issue? I see some nods of the heads. The apple never falls far from the tree, people. It really doesn't, you know. And so some of that, some of you in here, that's going to be hard for you to hear when you're having kids of your own, you know. If you're always late, your kids might always be late. Conscious time estimation. So one of the reasons I bring this up is that the millisecond and second processing systems of your brain is where scientists are now researching that says, you know what, this is where general knowledge is formed. This is where your conscious cognitive thought is formed. So this is the timing, this is your clock, this is your big Ben of your brain, okay? With that, did you know that if you take a drink of water, those of you that have drinks, you know, that you have maybe a bottle of water in here, if you reach down and take a drink of that water, that there are eight processes over that three-second action, that motor action that you do, and most of them you're not even aware of because it starts with the visual information and the conscious time estimation of reach your hand, stabilize, get it at just the right angle. Yes, your brain does math. Even if you don't do math, your brain is doing math. Like, I hate math. I married a guy who is awesome at math. Why do I need to know math? I married someone who does math. (laughs) But your brain continues to do math. So um, there are eight areas of your brain that have to fire 
and consciously um, help you pick up that water to drink it so that you're not slurping it down your down the front of you. So at the center of everything we do, whether it's conscious or unconscious, timing and synchronization is at the center of it. Okay, so if you think about it, even the cadence of my words has timing in it. Before you were born, the first thing that you were exposed to was a rhythm. Anybody know what that rhythm is? The mother's heart rate. When I have a child who is especially dysregulated, some of you may know what this looks like, just really upset, any kind of transition. You know, you've, well, you've all been exposed to it. If you've ever gone to a Walmart at 5 (laughs) o'clock, you've seen this, okay? So one of the things that I tell my therapist to do is, If you know what the resting heart rate of the mother is, play a metronome with that beat. Because that is what will calm that child down, just like that. Okay, a rhythm that is consistent. Okay, if you think about it, a lot of times we'll say, well, let's play some calm music. Well, calm music has a bass beat to it that's very rhythmic. All music has a bass beat to it that's very rhythmic. And that is predictable. So we're going to listen to some music, and all I want you to do is just kind of listen and get the feel of this rhythm. Try to find the bass beat. Try to find what exactly you would call the bass rhythm to this. Is it playing? Do I need to click again? I may need to click again. Let me try this. There we go. Here we go. musicians in here. Anybody find the bass beat? Okay, it's four four time. One, two, three, four. Now you can add rhythm to that. Polyrhythm. Here we go. There you go. That's a teaser. (laughs) Sorry. Come back on Saturday, and we're going to do more of that. That's my friend um, Nacho Aramani actually composed that, and I've got a whole lot of music on Saturday that we're going to play with with that. Because even if you're in a room where you speak 50 different languages from 50 different cultures, if I play that music to you, you're going to start participating in it, and you're going to start moving to it. It transcends cultural barriers. That's pretty awesome. So let's talk about music being used therapeutically. Elements of music have been used effectively for various therapeutic needs. These elements include melody, harmony, tempo, dynamics, timbre, form, and rhythm. But the organizing factor in all music is rhythm. That's that bass beat, that heartbeat that the baby hears from the very beginning, rhythm. So when we look at rhythm, it doesn't matter what we're using. We can use our bodies. We can use our phones. We can use our feet. We can use the floor. We can use whatever it is that we can find to create that rhythm, to create the music. What I want to talk to you about here for the next couple of minutes is some research that demonstrates that if we are to hit the neurodevelopment level, Okay, so like Christine mentioned on the ACEs study, 
we come in on the cognitive, social, relational level a lot of times and go, I'm going to fix you. You know, let me introduce a concept of post-traumatic stress to you because I'm pretty sure you're going to suffer from that. But we don't know that for sure depending on the culture that we go to. So what I want to do is I want to take it down a notch, bring it down. We're going to talk about neurodevelopment. How do we as professionals go in from a very simplistic method and help the brains of the children, the preadolescents that aren't fully developed, that have been disrupted by a trauma? Okay, and in the United States, do you know that the prefrontal cortex of teenagers, I have four children, ages 22 down to 13, so I am there. The prefrontal cortex of most young men and young women does not fully develop until they're age 27. So here I thought, well, they're 18, I'm done, yeah, I'm done, 27, I'm not done, I'm not done. My 22, I'm like so far not done on my 22-year-old. So if the prefrontal cortex isn't done developing until they're 27, we have to go back and, you know, support that a little bit more every now and then, okay? So let's talk about how auditory motor synchronization rhythm that you just heard, how does that affect neuroprocessing? Well, what we know is that the ability to tap consistently to a beat at a young age actually results and it correlates directly to the consistency of auditory brainstem response to sound, ability to read, and phonological awareness. What does that mean? It means if you can tap consistently to a beat, then you're likely going to be able to grasp the language. You're going to likely be able to read and communicate. They did a study. Um, Tierney and Krauss, who also wrote this study, did a study with toddlers ages 2 and 3. And what they did is they had someone just playing a basic drum beat, okay? If the toddlers were interested in participating in actively drumming with the guy that was drumming on the drum, if they wanted to do, if they wanted to take the drumsticks and use it as a spear, that's not, that's, that's a little different. So we're not talking about those guys. We're talking about the ones that actually want to get in there and drum. Well, three years later, when those same toddlers went to kindergarten, those kids were far and above academically superior learning to the ones that did not want to drum to a beat, that didn't grasp the idea of tempo and rhythm, okay? That's important, okay? I could go social on you and talk to you about what's wrong with our schools, but I'm not going to do that right now. We're going to stick with the whole neurodevelopment thing. So if children have more trouble synchronizing to a beat, they're probably not going to want to do it. So how many of you say, I hate math? Me, right here, never liked math, don't get it, did enough just to get my degree. Married someone who's good at it. Okay, that, that you know, part of my brain, I didn't really ever work on. Toddlers are not going to sit there and go, oh, a drum, I need to learn how to drum because this is good for my language skills, and I'm going to be a better reader if I drum. You know, they're not doing that. They're going to walk away from what's not easy, Okay. So if they have less trouble synchronizing or if they want to pick up the drum and they're able to keep rhythm, what we're finding is that their brain is firing more consistently, okay? Their auditory response, their visual response, their motor response, it's more consistent. You don't have the 5 o'clock Walmart breakdowns with these kids like you do with kids who have trouble synchronizing. 
This is another study that was done in 2001, and this was actually done with um, cultural barriers in mind. The title of the study was The Effects of Live Taped and No Music on People Experiencing Post-Traumatic Amnesia. So after a trauma experience, if they had amnesia and they introduced music to those participants, they had much better response rates, much better recovery rates with music. And the music was culturally um, relevant. So um, we're not going to go in to the middle of an African tribe who's always used animal skin instruments with our bells and go, Jesus loves me, this I know. Are they going to relate to that? No, because they're used to bongo drums. They're used to other types of music. So when they had culturally relevant music that they introduced to post-traumatic amnesia participants, they had better responses. Rhythmicity and brain function. We know that there is an overlap with the brain areas engaged in music perception and non-musical networks. So you can't just go, well, I'm going to tap in to my dorsolateral prefrontal cortex right now to listen to this bass beat. Your brain doesn't work that way. It coordinates everything in your brain. That's how God is. He's the greatest scientist. Also, rhythmic synchronization is a very effective tool for rehabilitation. They're now finding that it actually prolongs quality of life with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and dementia patients. Okay, we're not going to reverse, but if we can prolong quality of life with rhythmic stimulation, such as a music with a good bass beat, give them back that bass beat, then we have some method of success. So timing in the brain is based on these four areas. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the basal ganglia, the cingulate gyrus, and the cerebellum. These aren't the only four areas, but every one of these areas does have a timing component to it. By the way, if any of you would like these PowerPoints at the end, if you'll just, um, you can email us or you can, um, you know, let us know on the website. We'd be happy to send you this so that there's some notes with this that you may want more information on. So timing in the brain. This is what we're talking about, is coordinating the brain. And when we go into these countries and we start talking about, well, we got to get into the neurodevelopment, the reason that we want to bring this to your knowledge is that research does support this. This isn't just a theory. This is actual research is supporting that music training induces structural and functional brain changes for a positive, okay? Well, we're not talking about a pill. We're not talking about, you know, a cognitive behavioral theory that maybe this will work for you. We know empirically that it does change the brain. These are some research studies up here. I'm not going to go through every one of them. Um, but these are some research studies that do support this um, title of music training inducing structural and functional brain changes. It also contributes to positive brain change and modulation of mood. So if, um, if you're driving down the road and you hear a song from the 80s that, you know, was really hip and cool, say, back in 1987, you know, maybe when you were a senior in high school or something, it's going to probably either, you know, elicit some good response from you or maybe, ooh, that was not a great period of my life or you know, if I hear a song that my dad used to play a lot, you know, that might elicit some fond memories. You know, oh, I remember my dad used to play that every Christmas. Or there is also the opposite end of that. 
Okay, music that elicits a response of, I kind of have a stomach ache, you know, that kind of makes me sick because that reminds me of someone that, you know, I lost or something. Music can help with mood, either elevation or depression, okay? And modification of cortical inputs leads to synaptic changes which are related to improved sensory perception and enhanced behavioral performance, okay? Sensory perception would be that your senses, your touch, your taste, your hearing, your vision, these are all enhanced by certain kinds of music. There is a neuroimaging study that was completed in 2004, and basically what they did is they put 50 men inside an MRI, and the MRI typically has a clicking sound, much like a heart rate, okay? It's a clicking sound. When the click was happening, um, and they weren't claustrophobic, by the way. None of them were claustrophobic, which is really good when you're an MRI. Mm -hmm. So what happened was with that clicking, they asked the gentleman to mimic clapping. So they, they asked them not to move too much, but just to try to clap along with the stimulus. Well, just hearing the rhythmic stimulus lit up certain parts of the brain, including the cingulate gyrus, basal ganglion, medial brainstem. But when they added the motor response to it, more of the brain areas actually lit up with blood flow. Why is this important? Because neuroplasticity is based on improved blood flow to certain parts of your brain, okay? Just like if you have your hand in a cast for six months and then we take it off, it's not going to be strong anymore because you have not had movement there. You haven't had a lot of blood flow there. All you've had is just resting blood flow, not active. So resting Active. It's important to pair the activity with the listening. So even though what I've been talking to you about is that music can set the mood and it can elevate your senses, that's great. But now we need to move to it as well. In order to get the full effects on our brain, we need to move to it. One more study that I want to highlight is that timing is very much cued into child development. So what they did is they, the researchers, I always say they, like some vague people in Chicago that did this, you know, study. I, I actually don't really know where they were from. But they took 500, they, the researchers, took 585 children ages 4 to 11, and they asked them to try to keep the rhythm to beat. So they measured their rhythmic uh, responses in milliseconds. And the closer to zero that they responded, the better their reaction timing. And they measured this using a tool called the interactive metronome. With that, they measured all 585 children. They found that those children who were able to keep the rhythm of the beat within about 40 milliseconds consistently had better academic and social responses in school. They didn't need special education they weren't in the lower socioeconomic classes. Um, they had better motor coordination, better oral written language, and better attention. Also, timing was better as they aged, if they were already doing well on academic tests, um, and if they were taking dance and musical instrument classes. Okay? Timing was deficient in those children who required special education, who were from unstable home environments, and who were not attentive in class, okay? So if you've got a wiggler, those of you who are teachers, you've got the wiggler in the back 40 who won't pay attention. Eyes up here. Tommy, right, right here. 
right? I'm going to move you to the front desk because you're going to, well, Tommy's brain is not consistently responding to anything that you're saying, okay? So Tommy's vision is over here. Tommy's ears are way back there at Tommy, you know, or at good morning. Today we're going to have milk for snack, and that's what Tommy's thinking about for the whole rest of the morning. I wonder if there's going to be cookies with the milk, you know, and that's, that's it. That's what you got from Tommy that day. So it doesn't matter if he's sitting up front, right? Because Tommy's brain is not consistently reacting, okay, to anything. And this is important when we look at going in and we look at disruption of daily life with all of these cultures that have trauma experiences, okay? So I want to go back to this. Real briefly, what we're looking at with adverse childhood experience, that would be a trauma event, okay? Mostly before the age of five, but not always, okay? That results in disrupted neurodevelopment, okay? Disrupted neurodevelopment looks like memory issues, attention issues, inability to stay motor coordinated in PE, like you're always tripping. What is it? Well, I'm just not a good athlete. My mom said I'm not a good athlete. No, it's probably more of a disruption. Well, maybe. Okay. Yeah, maybe you're not a good athlete, but, but it's okay. You're special, right? Because we're going to give you a medal at the end of this PE class. But besides that, okay. See, I go off on these little tangents. It comes with age. Um, so we have a disrupted neurodevelopment from an adverse childhood experience. Well, let's talk about what that might look like. In the United States, we see this all the time. It could be a home environment, nature versus nurture. Um, it could be, a, you know, one of my parents was killed in a car accident. It could be abuse, sexual, physical abuse. It could be abuse from someone you trust outside the home. Lots of different experiences. So in our culture, we're looking at more people-centered abuse. Okay? We're looking at abuse that's implied on us by another person for the most part. The gunman took my family. Okay? Someone broke into my house and scared me. I was raped. Um, you know, my dad left when I was three. Okay? Abandonment by person. When we go overseas, the adverse childhood experience is my whole family was killed in the tsunami. Okay? I lost my everything my house and everything in the earthquake, okay? Um, you know, it looks very different. And because of that, different cultures have different resiliency, okay? So here we go, oh, sweetheart, you know, your dad left, doggone it, when, he, when you were three and you're better for it, but it's okay. <laughs> you know, we're going to get you cognitive behavioral therapy. We're going to put you in every program that we have. We're going to give you free lunches, because that's what you need to heal. But in Sri Lanka, they didn't need free lunches. They didn't need cognitive behavioral therapy. They needed to get back to function, okay? So the differences in our approach have to be taken into consideration with cultures. So what we know is there's disrupted neurodevelopment regardless of culture. So when we go in here at the social, emotional, and cognitive impairment level, we have to consider resiliency and culture. Then we can consider what does the adoption of health risk behaviors look like in these different cultures, okay? 
so in our culture, it's drugs, it's drinking, it's sexual promiscuity. But in other cultures, it may be, I'm leaving home when I'm 13. I'm doing it on my own, you know. Or I'm going to, you know, start to have a family, you know, get married to the first person who, who or I, I'm given away to someone who I'm supposed to get married to and start a family, okay, because that's what's going to save the rest of my family. So health risk behaviors, disease, disability, and social problems, what we're finding now is that this does present 15, 20, 30 years later, okay, heart issues, anxiety attacks, schizophrenia, sociopathic-type behaviors. Um, those are presenting later, much later in life, okay? And then that results in the early death, so at risk, okay? Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about how we're going to get in there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. okay, so the temptation that we are trying to avoid by starting with the story of Sri Lanka and ending with what we're about to present on is we don't want you to take the bongo drum to Africa and say, now I know how to heal these people. Bum, 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 <laughs> right? We, we want you to come over with a desire for, I am here and they are the experts. I am here to learn from you. And yes, I have some experience of my own and that's valuable and there are places where I can apply that. But I'm coming first to understand, not to be understood. So we're going to use these principles um, with the image of a Karen. How many of you know what a Karen is? Yeah? Okay. So um, this is something you would see very commonly if you lived in Colorado. Um, they are on the side of most every trail that you would go on. And basically what it is, is it's not a guide map to say, okay, I'm 15 miles to the next left turn. I don't hike those long of trails, but maybe more like three miles to the next left turn. Or um, this is the incline that you're going to have before you get to the top. No. There's nothing to tell you which direction to go, um, you know, how much further you have. It's simply to say you're on the right path. And that's what we want to use for these principles. You're on the right path. It's not going to tell you what to do. So... Um, we're going to start off with the very base of, your, of everything you do has to be relationship. We cannot move forward until relationship is built. Now, I would say that this is universally true no matter what type of missions that you're doing. But I think that at times you'll see where in medical missions, I'm building relationship as I'm learning about this child and attempting to structure their posture to make sure that they can sit up a little bit easier or to um, apply, to give them the vaccines they need. That's how I'm building a relationship and caring for them. In trauma, that's not the approach you use. You don't pull out the manual and start doing the CBT approaches to build relationship. You build relationship first. And this was something that I had to kind of come to grips with when I went, um, when I was in graduate school, I studied um, human trafficking and, and the, did my thesis work on, over in Gulu, Uganda, working with women and children who have been trafficked by the Lord's Resistance Army. And, um, and as I first got there, I'm in grad school mode, the land of deadlines and checkboxes, and I'm ready to go. And... The first week, what they told me to do is just get to know them. Get to know them. 
Um, we don't speak the same language. <laughs> yeah, go sit. Sit with them for days. Mm-hmm. And that's where we began, was just sitting and, and developing relationship. It was the best thing I could have done that first week because it allowed for the weeks that followed that for us to actually be able to pour into one another's lives rather than me coming in with the method. The next one is the one that I keep referring to, seek to understand before being understood. I really think that this is the key to, um, to taking any approach, anything that you've learned here in the States, and being able to first go in with a desire to teach me. And the next, um, the, the next uh, few that we have will kind of go into that. So seeking to understand, one of the things that we need to seek to understand are what are your symptoms? Like we talked about in Sri Lanka, it, it doesn't look the same. We don't have people coming into sessions saying, um, I'm just feeling a lot of sadness or um, I'm feeling a lot of guilt. They don't describe through the, the words of psychological or the mind. More likely, we're going to say, my arm is hurting. I, can't, I have the numbness or I have a fiery feeling in my belly. Fiery feeling, what, what does that mean? Well, if you were in Japan, that could be a sign for depression. So coming in with a desire for, tell me, what does it look like when someone loses someone or experiences hardship? How do you know that your neighbor is hurting? And that's a really key piece to finding out before you pinpoint, oh, that's the person with trauma. Um, emphasizing cultural strengths. This is huge. Um, for the, the stories we've been talking about in Sri Lanka, Dr. Gayfrey Fernando, who was um, an assistant professor at the university, or California State University, she's an assistant professor in psychology and a native to Sri Lanka. So this woman should be like the pro when it came to the tsunami for Sri Lanka. And she had actually done years of research before the tsunami occurred, just looking at what has been the effects for these people. I mean, they've experienced years of hardship. They've um, civil war, youth uprisings, poverty. What does, what does this look like for them? And what it was showing is that it was building resiliency. They have an amazing ability to remain functional, to remain hopeful, and to integrate hardships into daily living that we don't fully grasp in the United States. And so when Westerners saw, oh my goodness, they've had this difficult history, and now a tsunami comes? Like, this was the worst time ever. And we think that they've already been beaten down, when really that was one of their greatest strengths. So coming in with a desire to know, what do you rely on? For Sri Lankans, it's, it's community and it's their faith. So what, do, what does your culture already rely on? What do they already have in place to rely on before we bring in our own methods? The next one is dignity will drive ownership. Um, and really, through all of these methods, dignity is driving ownership. Because again, they're the experts. So when you come to them thinking, before I tell you anything that I want you to do, I want to learn from you, you're showing them, you're the one that I'm trusting in this situation, you're the one that knows best, and thus, you're the one who's going to take this further when I go back home. That is so the end result that we can often lose sight of, and so um, that's a very important principle that we make sure we carry through. And lastly um, is return to function. I think a lot of times, particularly in the mental health world, um, our end goal becomes 
we want them to express their emotions, to express their feelings, and to integrate that back into their life and be able to move forward and um, show positive, positive emotions in their place. But that's not really the end goal. If we leave after that point, or if we say we've cleaned our hands after that point, then we haven't done our job. Because what gives that person value is not having shared their story or have it saying, yeah, I understand why that happened and why those pieces are good and now I can move on from it. It's that, yes, now we've crossed that bridge and now you're able to apply it in daily life that you're living right now. Why are you purposeful today? Is it cleaning the bathrooms? Is it being the mother? Is it doing your job again? And for people like the story of Sri Lanka, that is going to be so important. How can we get them back to their just base level of function again? Remember, they've had everything taken from their ability to clean a house or probably cook a meal from them for themselves. Well, if I can give them that value again, then that brings value back to themselves. So um, those are our principles that we just want you guys to carry forward as you take anything um, that you hear from this talk that you would do it with that in mind, that I want to value the person that I'm serving more than myself, and I want to take these approaches with that, with that idea in mind. So this is our last slide, just to kind of give you, again, a teaser for Saturday. Um, we are lucky enough to kind of book in the conference. So we get this one, the very first breakout session, and then the last breakout session. Um, we'd love to have you guys come because we'll really be doing more of the hands-on approach there. So some of the, the ways that we use tr these treatment strategies in the clinic, and we've used them overseas, um, to be able to just bring rhythm and timing back. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any questions? We've got about a little less than 10 minutes left, so we can do a little bit of yeah. question and answer. Or if you're completely done, just it's okay. You can go. <laughs> I, uh, after raising my first three children, adopted over a period of years three kids that have been neglected, abused, and then were in foster care for quite a while. And, you know, you're right on in what you're saying. And I do have that constant, ongoing struggle with the, you know, special ed teachers at the school trying to use methods of, behavior modification that are totally ineffective and actually harmful. Mm -hmm. um, How old are your children? Uh, 20, they adopted mm -hmm. 22, 21 rather, um, 15, and he's incarcerated right now. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, eight. Mm -hmm. So for your eight-year-old, can I make a suggestion? Mm -hmm. I would set a metronome on your smartphone or just buy a metronome beat and set it at about 50 beats a minute and have that as the foundational beat every morning Excellent. and every day when he comes home from school. It gives him a reference, and that'll, that should actually really help and, and you know, help support some of these behaviors that, that you're seeing. That's good. He, he was born into foster care. Mm. And uh, he tells me even now, I miss my birth mom. Oh, you know, oh he, sure. He doesn't really have any yeah. contact since probably three months yeah. ago. Yeah. People-centered trauma. Yeah. So just a couple questions, actually. Has there been any research that the rhythmic therapy reverses any of the, the brain damage that was visible? And then the second question, is there any applicability for adults who have gone through because of the condition? That's what I see here in the States, people who have sustained a trauma years before, and now they come to me with all of this baggage. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how, what is the applicability?
for an adult who mm-hmm. was suffering from things years before? That's a great question. Can we know? Take that one. Okay, so absolutely, we are seeing that there is increased blood flow in the brain and that it's actually static change. There was a study that was published back in 2012. It was the Department of Veterans um, did a study using the Interactive Metronome. If you go on the Interactive Metronome website, they have lots of research. In fact, all of this research today is cited based on um, the, the basic rhythmic changes that we see in the brain. But they took 50 soldiers, all of whom had had um, uh, 2.8 blast-related brain injuries plus the post-traumatic stress that goes with it. These are soldiers between the ages of 18 and 24, okay, a very critical age. And as I mentioned before, the prefrontal cortex is yet, yet to be developed fully. So we're still talking about an immature area of the brain that has been damaged not only physically but also um, psychologically. What they saw after um, a period of 15 sessions or about five weeks, okay, five weeks of doing interactive metronome therapy is that the EKGs and the EEGs of the brain actually the changed over the course of five weeks, six months, and one year following. So we, when I was back in school, we were taught that, you know, oh, if a guy comes in who's had a heart attack or has brain damage, you just make his life as comfortable as possible. Today, 25 years later, research absolutely does not support that. We're finding that unless it's actually a tau protein that's developed in the brain, such as if you go see the movie Concussion, that's all about the tau proteins that happen because of repeated hits. That's different. We're looking at black damage to the brain where the tissue is actually damaged. What we're talking about here might be micro damages or one insult. We can absolutely create neural pathways that go around that. So if you think about going down a, you know, a highway and sometimes you have to go on a detour, that's what we're creating is new detours in the damaged brain. That's absolutely very relevant um, with this, and it doesn't matter how old you are. Did that answer your question? Okay, thanks for asking. Not necessarily. So there, there is no tried and true tempo with that. And I want to caution you with that is that there, there is no tempo. I think everyone has their just right tempo. No two heartbeats are the same. In fact, when someone has a massive heart attack, we guess as to what to start their heart at again, but we're not really sure. So they've had an insult. They've had a gap in their actual actual rhythm that they may have had for 50 years, and now we change that. It's no wonder they have circadian rhythm issues, sleep-wake appetite issues. Okay, but a trauma experience, think about it. Your heart skips a beat, or you have racing heart, and then we get back to that rhythm of the heart. So your rhythm is disrupted with every trauma experience that you have. And like Christine so aptly pointed out, if someone drops crayons on the floor and you're used to hearing your dad hit your mom, that may elicit the same response. Okay? There was a question right here. That's return to function. That is part of that basic foundational function that they need again. So bringing a drum or just, you know, the music that I played for you just just now is actually culturally irrelevant music, meaning it, it, will, it will cross any cultural boundaries. So anybody could listen to that and get the beat, and it's not going to offend 
this or you know this group of people. So when the music has stopped, it means that we have had a trauma. It, it is very profound, and and we absolutely have to get back to that because there is one thing throughout all cultures in the world, and that is they all have their own type of rhythm and music. Okay, so that's a really profound question. Um, so were you saying that in order for there to be salience with the um, Rhythms, that there needs to be a motor component as well? Go ahead. Yes, I mean, that, that is the ideal because we're being able to integrate more areas into the brain. So rather than just listening and sequencing and finding, we're also bringing in the motor component. So it's it longer and it also is literally affecting more of the brain. Um, so whether that's dancing, whether that's clapping, whether that's tapping your foot, um, all of those are very important. Mm-hmm. It's not considered avoidance. So, Christine and I are both pretty type A personalities. We don't want to fool around with stuff that might work or that's theoretical. Okay, because I just don't have time for that. A lot of the kids that we work with, we might have for six months. So, I'm interested in absolute static brain change that's empirical. So um, you have to understand that there does have to be some repetitive motion here. You need about 18,000 repetitions of something to create a new motor pathway or a new neural network. Okay, so when your baby, who is so cute and fun, is learning to roll over, you're not over there with a tally mark going, um, that's one you've got 17,999 to go. You can do it, baby. You can do it. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about. You do have to keep the rhythm. And, you know, and most of us think that we're on the beat or that you're singing on the, you know, on the right note. Have you ever, I'm no one in here, I'm sure. But when I'm in the car, Taylor Swift and I, I could totally stand in for her at a a concert. I'm just sure of it. Totally. But, um, but, you know, I'm too busy. I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So what we have to do is we have to consistently be responding to within a certain millisecond range of that beat. Introducing the beat and the rhythm is the first step. But then actually practicing that and getting better at it is what creates the neural processes that we're interested in. Okay. Oh, we're done. He's cutting us off. This is not my fault. It's his fault. Thank you for coming.